This is the Overt Action Podcast, and I'm Kevin Strauss. And this is going to be the third part of our discussion on the USA Freedom Act, and also be our final part. For this last section, we're going to venture into some some dicey and, and difficult territory, which is to talk about uh, the impact that this will have on the intelligence community as well as as America more generally. And it's dicey because, first of all, we're making predictions, and it's really impossible to know exactly what will happen until we see how the law is being interpreted by our government and its its agencies, as well as how the intelligence community reacts uh, to, the, to the implementation of the law. It's also difficult because you're going to figure out pretty quickly that I am conflicted, uh, both about the law as well as about the programs that were shut down. Um, but I think, you know, as I, as I said very upfront in the first part of this, this law really gets to the fundamentals of what it means to be an American, particularly in the 21st century. And how are we going to find and continue to refine that balance between privacy and between our security? Because it's not different. It's not clear. Uh, and it's, it's nearly impossible to measure. And no matter what, there's always going to be trade-offs. So it's going to be a good discussion. And as always, I thank you for listening. So what I wanted to see is if you could give me a yes or no answer to the question, does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. So that's awkward. That was James Clapper, the Director of National Intelligence, testifying before Congress and answering a question by Democratic Senator Ron Wyden about whether or not the NSA collects information on millions of Americans. And as you could clearly hear, Clapper says no. Now, we don't need to spend today relitigating the issues of the past. Clapper later went on to clarify his statements when he was outed by Edward Snowden's leaks. But even if you believe, as I suspect most do, that Clapper was misleading, I do think his comments get to the intent of what the intelligence community thought it was doing uh, when it permitted NSA to collect this information. One of the key arguments that's been made against uh, the collection of metadata has been the argument that it's not effective, that it didn't stop any terrorist attacks. So for the sake of argument today, let's just say that that's true. So even if you thought that the risks to our privacy were worth such an expansive program, it's hard to defend the program if, in fact, it's not having an effect on terrorism. But I'd argue this in a little bit of a different way because I think there's a big difference between saying whether the program has been useful and whether it could be useful. And this isn't just an academic argument because we're always trying to figure out what tools we need to have in the future because the threat is always evolving. Uh, The way terrorists operate is always evolving and the means of communication they use are always evolving so let me let me give you a scenario to to illustrate this and this is based on uh, an actual situation but uh, but I'm gonna not get specific about it in order 
keep myself out of trouble. In any event, pretend, imagine that a bomb went off in a European country and the bomber killed him or herself. And no one had any idea that this was coming. It was a surprise. And all we could find was a cell phone with plenty of metadata. And the initial review of just that cell phone's calls in the last couple days showed calls into Syria, Iraq, Great Britain, and the United States. That could cause panic, especially if a second bomb went off, no matter where it went off. So in other words, if there was a second bombing in another country in Europe or in the same country, because everyone's going to start running around wondering, how big is this? How coordinated is it? And where's the next one going to go off? So at that point, every single intelligence officer who's looking at this issue is going to have to track down every single lead. And that's when something like this metadata would be very useful. Because before, what NSA could do is look at the number that had spoken with the bomber and use it to track down every single lead. So who did that phone talk to? And then figure out if those that phone was talking to any other known or suspected terrorist. Obviously, if they did find a link, then they could go after that guy next or that woman next. Uh, but there's even an advantage of being able to say, "Well, we didn't see, we don't see any reason that the, you know this cell phone was maybe they, it was an accidental call or it would they called a bank. It, maybe maybe it had nothing. You can conclude it had nothing to do with the terrorist attack. Well, there's actually value in that too because then that means the FBI and the intelligence community is going to be chasing their tails, uh, running down leads in the United States, so they can actually shut that off and focus their energies on uh, preventing attacks elsewhere." So there is a value even being able to disprove the threat. But more importantly, again, is in that sort of scenario, you want to have as much data as possible. Again, I'll, you know, I'll refer back to comments made by Senator Tom Cotton, if you listen to part one, where he talked about the haystack. Effectively, that metadata program was a haystack. And you can't find the needle if you don't have the haystack. So again, I'm not taking argument taking issue with comments made that seem pretty compelling that thus far the metadata program has not prevented an in a terrorism attack, but I do think it's wrong to say that it is not a useful program. But with all that in mind, it doesn't necessarily justify the program overall because the risks of abuse are enormous and they're obvious. Even if you think today that your intelligence community, you trust your intelligence community to not use your personal information against you, what's to say we don't end up on a slippery slope where 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now that things you're doing now because they're going to be a permanent record can be used against you or your children or your associates because maybe you don't agree with what the government's doing and so it can be used as a tool for political oppression. That is a very, very valid concern and even though we live in one of the freest countries in the world, we should never take it for granted. So that's what I meant by my introduction is that I am quite conflicted. Um, you know, I, I suspect that most Americans are conflicted as well, you know, as evidenced by some of the polling data I talked about in the last podcast, which showed that Americans favor civil liberties over counterterrorism, but they didn't necessarily think that what their government was doing was a violation of their civil liberties. 
So it's never going to be a clear-cut case of right and wrong. While I was at CIA, there was an apocryphal story, which is a million-dollar word way of saying it's a story that may have not been true. But let's pretend it is, because either way, it's, it's actually guided a lot of my thinking on these types of issues. Supposedly, there was a meeting talking about some sort of operation, a sensitive operation, and there was a senior CIA official in the room with a variety of officers uh, junior to him. And near the conclusion of the meeting, the senior CIA officer asked the room, you know why we do this, right? And then he paused and looked around, and no one gave him an answer. And he said, because if we fail and we get attacked again, Congress will overreact and take away all of our liberties. And that's why we do what we do every day. And that's the sort of thing that often keeps me up at night, that if we miss another attack, particularly a large-scale mass casualty attack, that our government will overreact because that tends to be what happens. If you consider that right now we're, again, in the process of rolling back a number of laws that were passed in the wake of 9-11, it's safe to say that a lot of people think we went a little too far. The problem is when bombs explode and Americans are killed trying to go about their daily lives, get to work, in the aftermath, people are pretty emotional. And it's tough to restrain the national security industrial complex from growing out of control. And in a lot of ways, that's a much bigger threat than anything al-Qaeda could ever do. So the question is, how do we find that balance to defend ourselves so that we make sure we don't lose our liberty down the road. That's pretty lofty stuff, so let, let, me, just, let me just step it down here a little bit. It, it's always difficult, as I said up front, to make any predictions about how this is going to change things. And I, I suspect, for the most part, with perhaps the exception of those working on the metadata program, the truth is, for the IC, it's actually not going to change things very much for the near future. And I also don't think Americans are going to notice any difference because, as I, as I said in the last section of the podcast, this wasn't something that was affecting our day-to-day lives. E- even if the NSA was collecting on millions of Americans' metadata, most people had no idea it was happening. And then when you consider that the DNI has said that in 2014, only 227 Americans were the subject of searches, we're not talking about tens of thousands of people getting investigated every day. And theoretically, the intelligence community will still be able to get some of that information from private phone companies when they need it. So that always ends up leading us into the world of hypotheticals, the what-ifs, and then from the implications of whether what happens if some of these what-ifs happen. If a bomb goes off, are we going to say, well, if we only had this program, we could have prevented the attack, and then we're going to overreact? Or, well, if we kept the program, we would have been on the road to having a major police state that eventually would have taken away all our rights. So I suspect that this conversation, especially amongst our legislators, has not ended. And it probably shouldn't end uh, for the near future. I think also looking ahead, you know, there's, there's a couple things that we ought to consider. The first is that this program, the metadata program, has been in place uh, in some form since for much of the period after 9-11. And Congress 
should have been informed, and it seems the record shows that much of it, at least the, the proper officials, were informed, which is not to say that they understood the program. But, you know, the issue is once this program came under public scrutiny, it didn't hold up, and it was reformed, which raises some broader questions about the effectiveness and shortcomings of congressional oversight. The second part is comes back to Mr. Edward Snowden, who was instrumental and obviously was the key player in exposing uh, Clapper's misstatement, if I'll put it that way charitably. Without him leaking all that information, uh, you know, we would go on believing that the NSA was had not been collecting that metadata. So I also think the discussion's not closed yet on whether Snowden was a hero or villain. I personally am not one to call him a hero, and that's perhaps a discussion we can have on a separate podcast. But if you support the reforms that were passed in the 2015 USA Freedom Act, it's hard not to give Snowden some responsibility for making a positive impact. Of course, on the other hand, if you oppose reform, it is yet another example of the harm he's caused and how he's made us less safe. And I think the final piece of this is is looking ahead to 2017, when you're probably going to start reading a lot about something called Section 702 of the FISA Act. And that could be even tougher than the NSA metadata discussions. Section 702 has to deal with how the NSA is using the Internet to spy on people. Section 02 is controversial because it gets into the, quote, backbone of the Internet, and it actually collects content. So your emails, tech, uh, Facebook messages, other kinds of instant messaging, your web browsing history, it's, it's much more intrusive. So privacy advocates tend to hate it. However, it's also been shown to be much more effective from a national security standpoint. So you're not going to have the kinds of debates you had over the metadata and why would we do it if it's not effective. This has been pretty clearly shown to be an effective program in terms of stopping attacks. So I suspect, given its much more intrusive nature, you're going to see much harder positions taken this time uh, on both sides. And they have a couple years to figure it out, but knowing this Congress, and particularly with the presidential election coming up, you're not going to see any action on it because it's just going to be too controversial until at least the next president is in power. It is also an issue that we intend to discuss more on this particular podcast. I hope this was useful for everyone. I hope you found it informative. Hopefully we gave you a couple new perspectives on the issue that have not been covered very well in the press. Uh, Obviously, this is very difficult stuff. Uh, It's frequently controversial, and if nothing else— I think you can walk away knowing that there's not a clear right or wrong answer in any of this. And perhaps this is a naive statement, but I'd say at a minimum, most people on both sides, whether you're a privacy advocate working for the ACLU or whether you're an NSA analyst toiling in obscurity, everyone had the best intentions in mind. And everyone's trying to keep our country safe from different forms of tyranny of threats to our national security. Thank you again for listening. I'm Kevin Strauss. This has been the Overt Action Podcast, www.overtaction.org.